I hope that repair becomes a lot more mainstream than it is. I hope that it becomes a lot more part of people's thought processes. And I hope that the Restart Project can play a significant role in making that happen. Welcome to Restart Radio. I'm Dave Pickering and I make a monthly podcast for the Restart Project. The Restart Project is a London-based charity and social enterprise whose mission is to spark reflection and change in our relationship with gadgets. A few months ago, I sat down with Fiona Deer, the then relatively new co-director of the Restart Project. And for this month's episode of the Restart Project podcast, we wanted to give everyone in our community an introduction to Fiona, and share with you how she ended up being a perfect addition to the Restart team. From studying parrot conservation in Costa Rica to cutting waste in her local area, she's been making change in her community and across the nation. And going forward, she's going to be making change with the Restart Project, taking a major role in getting our new fixing factories off the ground and in the future... She's going to be involved in so much more. Hi, I'm Fiona Deer. I've recently started as co-director at the Restart Project. My background is in climate campaigning and I was part of the climate movement for a very long time and got interested in avoiding waste and upcycling and things like that and have now moved into electronic fixing. So it's great to meet you, Fiona. Like This is the first time we've met face to face. You're going to be one of my new bosses. And so that's part of why I'm here in your front room, in your house, to talk to you and to get to know you. But also we thought it would be nice for the listeners to get to know you too. So how did the Restart Project come into your life? Well, just before lockdown, it was terrible timing. I, with a few others in my community, started a waste reduction project. So for that, we organised monthly workshops on different types of waste. So the first one was around clothes swapping. There was another one about mending furniture. And so we got in touch with the Restart Project then, actually, to see if, if it was possible to do a restart party. We weren't able to, but that's when I started following the Restart Project on Instagram. And then when I saw the job advertised, it really felt like the right job at the right time. Yeah, I mean, so have you been to a restart party yet? I've been to a few actually. And I have to say, it's really interesting, the difference between being there as a punter and being there as an organiser. Being there as an organiser is so interesting because you get to observe the other people and the interest that gets opened up to them when their electronics get opened up. It's really interesting to hear the difference between being a punter and being an organiser. My experience of restart parties from the start, like the first time I ever went to one, I was doing this. Like I was already someone documenting it. I was watching both those positions and sort of getting an idea of it. But how was your first experience of a restart party? Well, the first one I went to was open air at a fair. So probably less representative of other restart parties. It was a stall. There were kind of three or four different people there ready to fix and there was someone there ready to meet us and kind of coordinate everything and I loved that she had everything written out on a massive flip chart all of the items whether it had been fixed all of this you know but what was interesting is that I'd bought two things I'd bought a mouse and a radio and both of them obviously I'd been reading about this but both of them we couldn't get into and that was the problem and and the radio hadn't totally broken it's just it had a bit of a dodgy on off switch so we decided that it wasn't worth hacking into it because it was still working but if it properly broke at some point then it was worth getting into but having read about it a little bit getting to see in real life the issue with products not being made to be repaired. Yeah, you don't know until it breaks, do you? That's the thing. You don't know that the thing you've got 
can't be opened until you need to open it. Being at restart parties has opened my eyes in loads of ways to lots of things that I didn't really understand until I had sort of seen it on the ground. What was the difference then when you've been back as an organiser? What was that experience like? So I, I got to chat to most people as they came in and understand what they needed and then just got to watch as people just got into these really in-depth conversations with the fixers and they were so embedded and then a lot of them stayed for chats afterwards. It's not as simple as can you fix it or can you not? A lot of them, you needed a spare part or you needed something else. It was the start of a process. Then they went away with clear instructions on what to get. And then they were going to kind of come along to another restart party and try and fix it. You knew they weren't going to give up on those items easily. They were going to try and take the next steps and get it fixed. Right. I mean, that's interesting because, I mean, when you were first sort of describing that, I was reminded of a kind of metaphor I often use about repair and about restart, which is it's kind of like going to a doctor. You know, you, you go with your technology and then you have like a diagnosis. And then in these cases, it's like, oh, we need to get spare parts. That's kind of where it stops being a straightforward metaphor, because as you say, like people are going to learn and get a diagnosis, but they're also part of the fixing. That's what's very different. People who come to restart parties are advocates themselves. So in your new position within the restart project, I mean, you're going to be asked all the time now, what is the restart project and what does it do? So have you got your answers down yet? And can you describe the restart project in a few sentences? I think I can narrow it down to the restart project is about bringing back repair there's a few different elements to that so there's things like helping make sure the infrastructure is there so that's things like restart parties fixing factories and the repair directory so that people have somewhere to go if they want to get things fixed it's a bit about public education and that's kind of getting people to think about repair as an option and it's a bit about campaigning so that it's easier to repair cheaper to repair so that we're sort of changing the system alongside those other pillars that's interesting i listen back to the first ever episode of the restart project podcast in that episode I interviewed Janet and Ugo and those two are the people who founded the project in the first place and I think their initial reasons that it came together was about changing people's relationship with technology and like repair was something they realised was needed as part of that almost so it's interesting that it's kind of evolved over the years into what it is it's like you say the repair directory data has become more and more of a part of it and these new innovations fixing factories are very exciting it's still evolving so I spoke all about repair then but really actually stepping back a bit it's all about extending the life of electronics and what's coming to the fore now is reuse laptop fixing and redistribution during the pandemic you've got a lot more companies selling refurbished tech now so actually a better description is about extending the life of electronics and there's a few different ways to do that so how are you at repairing, particularly in terms of electronics repair? My background is not in electronics repair and it's mostly around textiles. So lots of sewing up holes in socks and trousers and things like that, which comes into my life a lot now. I more recently got into, I guess, salvaging furniture and things, more about upcycling. But my approach to fixing and upcycling is a bit, let's say, <laughs> unthorough. <laughs> so it's much more of the make-do and mend type mentality, which isn't actually how you approach electronic repair. You have to be very precise and very safe. So I hadn't really attempted electronic repair before I started it, other than kind of changing a plug. But I have now thrown myself in the deep end because within about the first couple of weeks of being at the Restart Project, I dropped my phone in water, did the classic pitting it in rice, and then was told quite quickly that that is not the right thing to do. <laughs> and it's, it's a big urban myth. But what you need to do is take the battery out. And of course, as we all know, those of us that follow the conversation around right to 
for repair, taking the battery out is not simple. You need three different types of screwdriver. There's an adhesive that's really hard to get into. When I went to this first event at UCL, one of the restarters showed me how to change the battery. So I went away, ordered a new one, did it myself, and it wasn't easy. The hardest bit was actually unsticking the battery. And I was slightly concerned at different stages because there's really good instructions, but they all come with warnings if you know you have to be really careful with batteries. So I was careful, took my time, took about two hours, but eventually I changed it and I was able to use internet outside the house, which was great. So I got a phone that I could use without spending loads of money on it. I have now changed my battery. I feel like I now can call myself a restarter, which is very exciting. Right. It's interesting to note that I didn't know that putting your phone in rice when you drop it in water was a myth. I'm still learning on this show. The other thing that was an important learning experience through that was the importance of the social aspect of repair. And actually, that's what really chimes with the Restart Project. He didn't just show me what to do. We opened up my phone together and it really brought home the importance of having these kind of ways that you can try out electronic repair, but with somebody who knows what's happening. So it was great to kind of go through that learning process myself. Right. It's kind of almost having permission because I'm always worried I'm going to break things irreparably. And so once you've seen somebody else do it, once they've told you, actually, the world won't end if you open something that you're not supposed to open. When Janae, the restarter, was showing me how to do it, we were just putting the screen back on and I was just trying to do it in a way. And, and he was like, oh, no, no, you have to kind of lever it in. Otherwise, you might break it. Even he was learning. He wouldn't have thought to tell me that. But he saw from me trying to do it that that was something that you need to tell people. There's only so much you can do with instructions that you read on a screen, right? You need that interaction with people. Electronic repair may not have been something that you were familiar with before taking this position, but you have a history and relationship with repair. And so what is your relationship with repair and what are the first kind of moments or memories that you can think of of like how you relate to repairing? The main way that I relate to repair, I don't like buying new and I don't like throwing things away. So it's about that whole kind of, let's see if I can extend the life of this thing. My first experience of that would have been with kind of sewing up holes and things like that. But actually, I'm kind of more interested in the creative side. So it's a bit about repair functionality, but it's a bit about, oh, what can I do with this thing that's being thrown away? And so in the last few years, I found some drawers on a street and turned them into shelves. I made a pond out of a bathtub. I've had, oh, I've had this old pram hidden away in a cupboard or in the shed for about a year and I haven't quite managed to make that work but I would like to turn that into a plant holder but I just haven't quite figured that one out yet. It's not quite repair is it? It's like transformation. The word normally now is upcycling. We were talking about this earlier on and I realised that you know I grew up in a kind of upcycling house because my dad was born in the 20s and that's just what you did and I had a desk when I was at school that was made out of a door and there was all sorts of things like that around. I always thought of as kind of really kind of cool. It's interesting to note that now there's a word for it, upcycling, whereas once it was just what people did. It's kind of good that we've got this new word for it but maybe it's sad that we've had to come up with that word in order to encourage people yeah. to do what we used to do anyway. Yeah, it's, it's almost like it's had to become a trend to bring it back. Exactly. And so your official title is co-director of UK strategy. What does that mean? So that means I more or less oversee what we do in the UK. And that kind of falls into the three categories of what we do. What I very, very quickly got involved in, which was brilliant, was helping set up the Fixing Factories project. I've got to know these brilliant partners that we're working with. So that's really exciting. And that's been a really concrete thing to get my teeth into, which has been brilliant, because the other part of what I've been doing is thinking about 
where we go next with the right to repair campaign and how we campaign in the UK, given that there's not much to work with. So that's been much more kind of big thinking and policy conversations and kind of wading through policy documents and things like that. So it's been really nice to have a balance of both whilst also being able to think into the future. And then also just a lot of fundraising and trying to make sure that we're a viable organisation. And I guess it's just like the way that Restart itself has evolved over the years. What you do as co-director of UK Strategy is also going to evolve and you're going to be part of that evolution. You're going to be finding out where it's going to go and sort of defining the new terms yourself. Yeah, and that's quite exciting. And I'm not from the same techie background as a lot of the people at Restart. My experience is in campaigning, but it feels like that actually really works and that it's really compatible and makes it really interesting thinking about how we take this forward over the next few years. That's quite a nice segue into the next set of questions I've got, really. So in terms of campaigning and your background in that, so you were a part of the Climate Coalition. Can you say a little bit more about what the Climate Coalition is and then talk about, you know, what you did as part of that? I was at the Climate Coalition for over 12 years, which is ages. It went through loads of changes while I was there. So I first started as part of a smallish team and it was to put on a big demonstration ahead of a big UN climate talk. Then there was just this big crash, there was climate gate and we shrunk down to just me. And I was just the sole coordinator for quite a long time. It was just me and an intern and the steering group. So that was an amazing learning experience. So I got to be part of these really interesting strategy conversations that you wouldn't normally be in at my position. And then we started building up the team again. There was a really interesting learning curve about reaching new audiences and shifting away from quite traditional campaigning to kind of engaging the people that our current government cared about, which was obviously the Conservative government. So how do we make them listen to us? So that was really interesting. And then it all got massive in the last couple of years because the UK hosted the climate talks in Glasgow. And so all of a sudden there was so much interest in the climate movement. Lots of funding came in, lots of new people, organisations wanted to be getting involved. And we were able to build up this amazing campaign, which was called the Great Big Green Week. And the reason it felt like a really natural time to move on is it felt like it brought together everything I'd learned during the whole 12 years. We were able to bring it in together in one week. And there was just so much interest. It just blew our minds. And that's a really exciting way to work. Yeah, I mean, the Great Big Green Week concept is very restarty. It reminds me of restart parties in a way. It's like making a feature and building community and like making a hub that people can come together from different backgrounds and kind of share knowledge in different directions, which is so important and quite rare within society. And it sounds like that was the kind of thing that was happening as part of that. Yeah, yeah. And there were two revelations as part of Great Big Green Week. One was that you can ask more of people and they will step up to it. You just need to give them enough time. It's almost like there's so much going on in the climate movement and that people really value a hook, you know, something to kind of attach what they're doing to so that it has this kind of bigger meaning. Yeah, I mean, and this is a a weird question because in some ways the answer is going to be everybody should be because it's affecting all of us. But how did you become involved or interested in trying to stop climate change? So that was a bit of a journey too. So I did my degree in zoology. I grew up wanting to be Jane Goodall and work with chimpanzees in the forest. What I ended up doing was working with parrots in a forest in Costa Rica. And I stayed there for three years and then sort of came back to do a master's. It was kind of an interesting thing because I was reading a book called Affluenza about the wastefulness of, of society at the same time as I from Costa Rica came back to the UK. And then all of a sudden people were just leaving lights on everywhere. Just everyone has so much more stuff. And it was just this real kind of theory and practice all coming together in my mind. So I went back and lived with my parents and just thoroughly annoyed them turning off lights all the time and putting a sticker on the stand 
standby button on the telly saying, no, turn it off. And they were like, why don't you get involved in a campaign? So then I got involved in the climate campaign, the Global Day of Action, got really good response for that. And then the rest was history. So then I moved on to the Climate Coalition. That's interesting. Hugo and Janet both have backgrounds within the Global South. And part of why they started Restart in the first place was a similar thing of coming back and seeing what it's like in the global north and being like what's going on so it's it's really interesting that you've also got that facet to your background and also a kind of global overarching view i think even though part of the restart project is very local as well as the other parts of it which are very global that conservation project that you did with was it the scarlet macaw conservation in that sense is very different from the kinds of conservation or sustainability that you've worked in since then. How do you feel about those different kinds of approaches to sustainability? I mean, it was a great project to work on because even in that project, there was a bit of research and climbing trees and there was also environmental education going into schools and, you know, talking to officials, you know, so even that like really, really narrow focus had lots to it. When I originally came back, I planned to do my master's dissertation on the Macaw project, but then I just felt like I needed to kind of step back. What's interesting, actually, is that we had seen some indications that climate change might be affecting the Macaw's nesting behaviour. So there was that part of it that was kind of, I can still work on this bigger picture issue, and it still linked to what I was doing, focusing on this one single species in a small part of the world. Right. I mean, that's kind of like why I said when asking you about climate change, part of the answer is we all should be interested in climate change wherever you go, whatever you're doing. We can all see effects of climate change and it sounds like you were a little bit ahead of the game. I think that that's a big part of the reason why there is a lot more concern about the environment these days because people are seeing the impacts. I remember kind of thinking a lot like people are only going to start really caring when they see the impacts and then it's going to be too late but actually we're in a situation where we're getting close to it but people are seeing the impacts. The whole narrative around climate change has changed so if you're a climate skeptic you, you started off saying climate change isn't going to happen And now you're more likely to just say, well, yeah, it's happening, but we shouldn't be doing this. It's interesting that you very rarely hear anyone saying climate change isn't happening now. And at the same time, there's a lot more people having concern. But that was one of the things when the Climate Coalition started trying to reach new audiences. That was all about the tangible impacts and kind of steering clear of big global issues and just talking about the flooding that's going to happen on your local river or the green space that you're going to lose. And then all of a sudden it feels real to people. That's why we have this really strong movement. Yeah. And at the same time as you were working in in the Climate Coalition. You also did zero waste activism in North London. What was that activism that you did? So we got a grant from the North London Waste Authority and there were a few of us that just wanted to do something about waste. We could have gone down lots of routes, you know, trying to work on plastic packaging or something like that. We focused on a range of different issues. So clothes and furniture and we did a kind of toy swap just before Christmas so that we hoped that people would get those toys rather than buying new and all about reducing consumption and reducing waste at the same time. It was a tough project because it happened during the pandemic. We only managed to do a couple of the workshops in person and then it was kind of back into the second lockdown. So we ended up doing a lot around comms. One of the people on our team was my brilliant friend who is a Channel 4 documentary maker. So we made this short film about our local area and it was all about the low waste champion, somebody who picks ivy to make laundry rather than buying bottles of laundry powder and then someone else who makes furniture out of pallets. And it was one of those things where you just didn't realise there were that many stories of in our normal community, we're not an eco-community or anything, but there's loads of people are doing really cool things to reduce waste and I think that was kind of a really interesting thing to learn when we put the film together it almost wasn't about waste it was about our community and then all of a sudden loads of people were interested and it didn't feel preachy it was just a celebration and that's how we finished the project 
And that's how we got politicians involved. We organised a screening in a local pub and got the local mayor and councillors along and we managed to turn it into more than a little behaviour change project. I guess the last bit of your back catalogue before we kind of go back to like restart and what the future might be, you did research on carbon reduction behaviour for an MSc in ecology and conservation. So that's when I came back to the UK from Costa Rica planning to do my master's on macaws and then in the meantime got into climate campaigning and when I did the presentation I did have to explain like why am I doing a study on human behaviour when actually this is supposed to be about conservation but everyone was very understanding of the fact that obviously human behaviour is a massive factor in conservation whether it's climate change or species conservation. Oh the complexity of human behaviour my goodness even if you look at the theory there's about I don't know 50 different theories for how habits are formed and how behaviour change works that's really complicated and then we had interviews with people who had made these pledges and then we followed up with them and said had they done it there were just a few things that stood out like somebody who said oh but we do recycle then they went on to talk about how they'd gone for a weekend trip to Argentina for Christmas shopping and you know the kind of dissonance between how people think about their behaviour that was really really interesting I totally respect policymakers that need to implement these things that are behaviour change because along with all of the other things we've been talking about it's not that simple you can't just implement things and they're going to work and you also can't just tell people what to do but it was helpful to have an understanding of how complex behaviour change is and just any kind of shifting how people think. One of the things that I always used to muse on when I was doing zoology is how this shift between culture and ingrained instinct. Culture has moved so much faster than our instincts. So we still have the instincts to be scared of spiders, even though we shouldn't be. You know, so we have all of these things that are left over from when we were living in forests, you know, and possibly even from when we weren't human. They're really old and they're really hard to get rid of. Meanwhile, we've now moved our culture forward to the point where we can wreak havoc on the environment, but without having caught up. So that's why we have these issues with the environment and why it's so hard and you need so much work and campaigns and so many people working on this to kind of push back against this instinct to just overexploit what we do. I mean, I feel like getting to know you for the podcast is kind of almost like finding out all of the many ways you're uniquely qualified for the job that you've got with the Restart Project. Everything you seem to have done sort of leads to this place, which is, you know, really good because I guess not everyone can say that about their working life. What projects are you excited about now going forward? I'm really excited about the fixing factories. I was really lucky to get involved in them right from the start. And I've been able to watch them develop over the last few months. We've got some brilliant staff in who are just running it now. And the Brent fixing factory is really starting to take shape. And on the horizon is also the Camden one, which we now hope will open in the autumn. That's starting to feel really exciting. And we'll get to see how a different sort of fixing factory works. The Brent one is based in a waste facility. So there are certain things that work really well, certain things that don't. And in Camden, we've almost got the opposite we'll be able to do a lot more public engagement there and try some new ideas and then going forwards we're really hoping that we get a chance to apply for funding that will allow us to scale this up so we're really keeping in mind kind of what we can be monitoring how we can be learning what we would do differently what we would do more of in the next stage that's brilliant we're also really getting our teeth into plans for repair day now which is in October so starting to have loads of creative ideas the challenge is to kind of whittle them down and focus them to a few that people can really get their heads around but That feels exciting and I'm looking forward to seeing 
being repair everywhere with partners and community and anyone who's interested in repair getting involved. I've been looking into what are the policy opportunities in the UK, having a few very useful conversations with partners, taking into account that there's not very much going on in the UK that will support right to repair. So we're thinking creatively about how we can get around that and how we can kind of build up public support behind repair. And it's too early stages to say too much now, but we hope that we can build up a big campaign for repair in the next year. So watch this space. There's lots of other things that we're doing. Too many to talk through here, but they're just a couple of the things that we're working on. And what do you hope for for the future of the Restart Project and for your role within that? Stepping back a bit, I hope that repair becomes a lot more mainstream than it is. And I, I hope that it becomes a lot more part of people's thought processes. And I hope that the Restart Project can play a significant role in making that happen. So whether that's working with partners, whether that's getting loads of publicity around the infrastructure work that we're doing so people realise that there is infrastructure so by that I mean fixing factories and restart parties and repair directory but also I'd love to think a bit more about comms and how we can work to make repair a mainstream thing it doesn't have to be niche and there's enough interest now so thinking about how we can build on that. Brilliant yeah welcome to the restart project it's great to meet you in person finally. Thank you great to be at the restart project and great to meet you. As Fiona said towards the end of the interview, fixing factories are now more than just an idea. They are real places developing and growing the repair infrastructure of the UK. The Brent site has opened already and there are public-facing events each month and even a training course for young people. Check out fixingfactory.org and the Restart Project website for more information about this exciting new project. It's clear that the accumulation of Fiona's experience puts her in the perfect position to move the Restart Project into our next decade, developing our impact in the UK and engaging the public with our cause. We can't wait to see what comes next. And we're sure that you'll hear Fiona on Restart Radio again very soon. Restart Radio is a show aired on Resonance 104.4 FM and a monthly podcast uploaded to the Restart Project website and found wherever you get your podcasts. As with all episodes of Restart Radio, we'll include links with background information to all of the issues and stories discussed over at the restartproject.org where we've also set up a fundraiser. So if you've enjoyed this episode, do make sure that you donate there to help to fund the future of the podcast. The music that you've heard in today's episode was made with lasers and repurposed electronics and is a collaboration between Opto Noise and Cassini Sound. And big thanks to Restart's communications producer, Holly, who does the research and the planning for the podcast. And now it's time to pack up the equipment and say goodbye to each other. Goodbye, everybody.